And so a world turned upside down is the title of our sermon this morning. And it says in Isaiah 52, it says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And if you look at the Greek Old Testament, that phrase, good news, guess what it means? It means gospel. It's the same word that we use in the New Testament to describe the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And the Old Testament description of the good news or the gospel is a message of kingdom hope. That's important that we have that in our brains right now, kingdom hope. The Apostle Paul picks up this language in his letter to the Ephesians when he says that he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The good news is the message of a king and his kingdom. It is the proclamation that Jesus, the one who suffered, died, and was buried, is the rightful messianic heir to Israel's throne. And that his reign is something that stretches beyond the borders of Jerusalem, leaving salvation and the forgiveness of sins in its wake. And while it's true that we can, that we can claim, as the old hymn goes, victory in Jesus, it is a victory that is ushered in through the scandal and pain of a Roman cross. This morning, we're once again going to look at the ministry of Paul and his companions, and we're going to see how the kingdom of God, the good news, that gospel that was spoken of in Isaiah 52, actually serves as a stumbling block to the watching world. Because our world fails to see that there is indeed power in weakness. There's power in weakness. And that's the shape of the mission of God. The shape of the mission of God is, is weakness. And, and in that weakness, the weakness of the cross, the suffering that we experience, comes life. And this mission turned the world upside down, as it says in the book of Acts, and it continues to do so as, as it is faithfully lived out and proclaimed by God's people. And so looking at this first section in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, this Jesus is the Christ. See, Paul's opponents from the synagogue in Thessalonica are going to go through great and sinister lengths to silence him and his companions. And we're going to kind of take a look to see why that is. So let's, let's read this passage. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ or the king to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble or, or ruffians, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received him. 
And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They don't know how right they are. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greeks, women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, right, they hear something going on, they're not even in the same town, they learn that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. That's a lot of text, and we could probably be in that text all morning, but we're actually going to be in that for a few minutes, jump ahead for a few minutes, and then finish things out, hopefully within 35 to 40 minutes. But let's see, right? So a couple of observations. Paul keeps his pattern of going to the Jew first by entering the synagogue on three Sabbath days. So three weeks he's preaching Christ to them. His message is from the scriptures, and it is a message that argues for a Messiah or a king that does not fit the categories of the first century Jews living under the thumb of Roman oppression. In other words, the Jewish people did not want a suffering king. They were already suffering. They wanted liberation. They wanted freedom, but they didn't understand that that's not necessarily what the good news was about, at least at that particular moment in time. At least at that particular moment in time. I also think it's interesting as we're making these observations that in both Thessalonica and Berea, that Luke emphasizes these women coming to faith. This could be preparing the way for one of Paul's closest co-workers, Priscilla, that we're going to learn about in just a few minutes. The Jewish members of the synagogue, what do they do? They solicit help from some wicked men of the rabble or ruffians to do their bidding. Jason's household is attacked for the sole reason that he offered hospitality to these traveling missionaries. And their main issue seems to be that they have turned the world upside down, acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Right, so what's the point here? The good news of the kingdom is not meant to solve our perceived problems, but rather to unleash new creation into the world through humble and sacrificial service. A suffering Messiah did not meet the perceived needs of first century Jews as it went against their own understanding of both power and salvation, and it would most likely caused problems for them because they were trying to just live as Jews under Roman oppression. And they knew that if someone was proclaiming another king besides Caesar and, and they were being associated with them, that that would just cause trouble for them. And so they're thinking in their heads, let's get ahead of this thing. Let's figure this thing out so, so this doesn't fall back on us. And we're going to see how this kind of unfolds throughout the rest of the text. That's an important thing for us to wrap our minds around because often I think we approach these passages and we just want to kind of like just destroy the Jewish leaders. But, but there is a sense where they're afraid. They're afraid of what's going on. They don't necessarily understand what's going on. And in fact, what they're hoping for 
is liberation similar to their ancestors who were liberated from Egypt. But see, they don't get that, that the kingdom of God is, is what theologians describe as an already and not yet sort of thing. That there are promises of the kingdom that we experience in the here and now, but then there are things that we have to wait for until the second coming, when, when we see Jesus face to face. That's when all of this stuff will come to its fullest realization. But as for now, we're not there yet. And that frustrated the Jews of this time. They wanted to be there. They wanted to get out from under the thumb of Roman rule and oppression. And, and isn't that all of us? Do we not? No one likes to suffer. No one likes being under, held captive by anything. And so it makes sense. And I want us to kind of get in their shoes a little bit to understand where they're coming from. Because I often think we stand on the outside kind of just throwing bombs at them, being like, look at them. They don't get it. I'd be, I'd be challenged, I challenge all of us to think that we would all get it at that particular moment. Some of us might. I even think now we don't always fully get it. We don't fully get what God is actually doing. And we're looking for God to do things that maybe he's not even planning on doing. And so I think that's important to kind of keep that in mind, that the Jewish people were asking for things that God wasn't necessarily interested in at that particular time. And so the, the text goes on as we move to the next section, and we're going to skip over this whole section of Athens because Daniel's going to cover that next week, and we're going to jump into Corinth, verses 1 through 17, chapter 18. Do not be afraid. See, Paul's message is once again reviled as he continues to lift up the humble and self-sacrificing man Jesus as the king of Israel, a message which he is reassured of in a vision which gives Paul the confidence to continue. Let's see what happens here. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. You see that theme reoccurring here. The Christ was Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left them there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I want to pause there for a second couple of things, right? Both Priscilla and Aquila enter the scene. And while the text is not explicit, it does seem that they are already followers of the way or Christians and quite possibly friends of Paul. See, there's no scene where it says Priscilla and Aquila believed and were baptized. So we can assume maybe they already were because they get right to work with Paul at this point. And it seems like they might know each other. It seems like they might know each other. Paul's message remains the same. Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is 
the king. And, and this is a message that is reviled by the Jews. Why? Why is this message reviled? Why do the Jews not want to hear this? Because, because the idea of a Messiah who hangs dead on a tree is anathema to them. It's, it's a curse to them. See, they, they have no category for this. Their own scriptures say that this doesn't make sense. It says in Deuteronomy, anyone who hangs on a tree is accursed. Oh, but again, they're not getting it. Of course he's accursed. He's accursed on our behalf so that we might not be accursed. And so the king dies on behalf of the kingdom. The king dies on behalf of the kingdom. And in the minds of the Jewish people, they don't have a category for that. And so they revile the message. And then what happens is that Paul seems to lose his temper, which, which I kind of like. I kind of appreciate this because it humanizes Paul. Again, we often think of, of these biblical heroes that, that like they never did anything wrong. But the beauty about the book of Acts is it's, it's just telling the story. It's telling the story. And we get, we get to kind of peek in on the humanity of these individuals. And yeah, Paul's angry. He's angry. And, and, he, and, and what does it say? I, I lost my spot here. It says, it says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. As though he's never going to go talk to Jews again. And we know that's not true. So he seems like he's blowing off steam right now. Because then what happens right after is that the leader of the synagogue and his whole household believes and, and they're baptized. Well, I don't know if it says they're baptized, but they believe. What an incredible thing. That in the midst of his anger, in the midst of the brokenness of Paul, God is still at work. God is still at work. And see, this is the irony of the mission. This is the irony of the gospel. It is through brokenness. It is through suffering that life is birthed. I mean... That, if anyone has ever had any children, and, and I'm a man, so, so I just got to be in the delivery room, but you know there's pain involved when life is brought forth. There's pain involved. And we see this happening throughout the book of Acts, that it is pain and suffering that brings forth life. This is the irony of the good news. This is the irony of the kingdom. It's death that brings about life. Suffering that brings about life. And God works in the midst of it. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It also says that many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. So now both Jews and Gentiles are coming together in faith. And then it says that the Jews brought Paul before the proconsul, claiming that he is teaching people to worship God contrary to the law. It says in verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. He's, he's washing his hands, similar to Pilate, it seems like, right? And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Right? So they bring Paul before the proconsul, claiming that he's, he's, he's teaching people to worship God contrary to the law. 
And Gallio basically responds by telling them, figure it out. Not my problem. Which is interesting because what he seems to really be saying, he's like, you better figure this out before it becomes my problem. Because, see, the thing about the Roman Empire is that they didn't like disruption. They didn't like chaos. They didn't like disorder. And so there is this sense where, where Gallio's kind of like winking at him, like, yeah, it's not my problem, but, but it's going to be if you don't take care of it sooner than later. And so what do they do? This is so fascinating to me. They beat up their own guy. They beat up their own guy, Sosthenes the new ruler of the synagogue. Because remember, Crispus became a Christian and now there's a new guy. But it seems to be, as you look in Paul's letters, that even Sosthenes becomes a Christian later on in the story. I mean, I wonder why, right? His own people are beating him up. He's probably like, I don't want any part of this. Like, you guys don't seem to really have my back. But it does seem that the Jews are trying to figure it out. They're like, okay, like, like what, what's Gallio saying here? All right, you know what? Let's, let's show him that we care. Let's show them that we're going to take care of business. And, and the best part is, it says, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. He doesn't care. He just wants it done. And so what's going on here? Paul's message and the expansion of the church is causing issues in the Jewish synagogues. And as a result, there is disorder and chaos, which goes against the fabric of Roman life. So it seems that the Jews are trying to distance themselves from the issue by handing them over to the state, but the state hands them right back and tells them to figure it out. As I was going through this this morning, I was reminded of a, a scene in Bronx Tale where Sonny says to Colosio, you think Mickey Mantle cares about you? Mickey Mantle doesn't care about you. But anyway, maybe you've never seen that movie. In other words, the first century Jewish people are for the most part unconvinced that Jesus is the promised king of Israel because he doesn't fit their categories for what the promised king should be, so they want nothing to do with it. And they fear that the continued disruption and the Christian claims that Jesus is Lord will create problems for them because they live in a world where Caesar is Lord. See, they live in a world where Caesar is Lord. So unless the Messiah is going to take care of Caesar, they don't want anything to do with it because it's going to fall back on them. They want nothing to do with it. And as I'm going through this, I, I started thinking, well, well this, this is our story. This is actually our story because we still live in a world where Caesar is Lord. And to claim anything to the contrary will be met with opposition. And see, this is why, and, and I want us to really pay careful attention here, this is why we must be wary of any attempts to bring together Caesar and Christ. Because our goals are not in alignment with one another. I think theologian William James Jennings articulates this well. He says this. He says, the problem is not that the church should be oblivious to the well-being of the state, but that churches have felt and continue to feel compelled to make the case to the state that what is important for our well-being should be important to the state. But we should never imagine such a hoped-for synergy of concern. We press for the flourishing of the world and not for the flourishing of the church. God will see to the latter. In other words, we must trust that God is going to care for us, not the state. God is going to care for us. And, and that's just going to be how it is. And that's how it's always been. And, and frankly, we probably need to get used to it. 
because we are a fringe people as followers of Jesus. We're a fringe people, and that's actually a good thing because, remember, there's power in weakness. There's power in weakness. I, I was actually really encouraged um, this morning because, you know, Travis forgot to read one portion. I didn't know the song, and then I started thinking to myself, who cares? It doesn't matter because you know what? This isn't a show. This isn't a play. It doesn't matter how professional things are. It doesn't matter if the speakers pop. It doesn't matter. Because what we are is the family of God. And we are on the fringe of society. And there is power in weakness. See, there's humanity when I forget my chords. I keep on bringing that up because I want to make myself feel better, maybe. But, but the point is, is that there is power in weakness. That is the kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. Life is birthed from death. Life is birthed from death. That's just the reality. So in other words, like I said, we must trust that God is going to care for us, not the state. And if we can come to grips with that, then we will be freed up to love and care for one another and our neighbors. The way of the cross does not lead to worldly flourishing, nor does it lead to acceptance by the surrounding culture. But you know where it does lead? It leads to deeper communion with God and with one another. It leads to deeper communion with God and one another. I mean, look at what's happening here. Paul and his companions are getting beat down regularly. And what does that do? It strengthens them. Paul's going to speak about Priscilla and Aquila at the end of the book of Romans, and he speaks to them as, as, as his fellow co-workers in the faith. Like, these were his people. They've been through it. Now, I was, I was never in the military, but I can imagine that people who go through war together, who are in foxholes together, develop a bond that is unbreakable. Unbreakable. Because they've experienced pain together. They've had to shoulder one another's burdens together. Now, take that and multiply it by the Holy Spirit. And, and oh my goodness, what do we have going on as we march on in mission, as we embrace this idea that there's power in weakness? That's the family of God. That's the church. That we would shoulder one another's burdens. That we would care for one another. That we would proclaim the good news to a world that wants nothing to do with us. And in so doing, in the same way Paul continues to go back to Antioch and, and, and be cared for by his people, that we too would be cared for by one another. And what happens? We're strengthened. I think another thing that shows up, which I think is very important, and, and I might have I skipped over it, and that's a mistake of mine. But actually, I don't think I did. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's experiencing this situation, and, and, and he's, he's, being, he's being reviled, and then what happens? He has this vision from the Lord, and what's the vision says? It says, do not be afraid in verse 9, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Again, Paul's humanity just kind of comes to the front, like he's going through it right now. So much so that God has to actually have a conversation with him in a vision to let him know, like, it's okay. I got you. I got you. 
And in fact, not only do I have you, but I got people in this city. They're going to care for you. Redeemer, you have people in this city who are going to care for you. We need to continue on in this fight. We need to continue on. We need to lean on one another. We need to pray for one another. And we need to proclaim the good news of Jesus with boldness. Knowing it won't be received, but trusting that our family has our back through the power of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful story. Because there's power in weakness. There's power in weakness. It's an upside-down kingdom. And as we spoke about some year and a half ago when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, while it might be an upside-down kingdom, it is actually the right side up for how creation ought to be. And in fact, the suffering nature of, of, of Jesus and how he, he enters into the suffering of this world, it's actually who he is as God. It's part of his, to use a big word, ontology. Because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because he was in the form of God. And now there's debate on how we should translate that participle, but, but evidence seems to suggest it's because he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning that the very nature of God is humility. That's important. That's important for us to understand as we think of a doctrine of God. That he is humble. The triune God is humble. Oh, but he's also exalted. We see in a couple verses after that in Philippians. Because of his humility, he is exalted. And then his story becomes our story. Because when we are brought into union with Christ, when we bend our knee to King Jesus and we die that first death, that humiliating death, and death is humiliating, what happens to us? But we're raised up to new life. I've said this before, as it says in Revelation 20, we don't taste the second death. We don't taste the second death. And so God is calling us to live our lives in obedience to him, reflecting the image of God into this world, which is what? Humble and sacrificial service, proclaiming good news, calling people from sin to righteousness. We do that in both word and in deed. And we're going to be opposed for it. It just is what it is. It is what it is. And that's okay because that's when God is at work. That's when God is at work. The text continues, verses 18 through 28. And I know there's plenty of things we're skipping over, but, but that's just the nature of going through large portions of Scripture. And, and I'm just not a guy that would want to be an ax for the next five years. That's just not me. That's not how I'm wired. But verses 18 through 28, let me read it. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Senecra, yeah, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So again, he's not done with the Jewish people, as you noticed. He was just blown off steam. He goes right back. In fact, you'll read in, 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 in Romans his, his deep care and compassion and love for his fellow countrymen. And it says, he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. 
When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Remember, Antioch is his sending church. That's where he, he, he is, he's encouraged. That's where he's built into. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Remember, strengthening the disciples. That's the mission that he's on right now. And now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then he wished to cross to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. And what does it say here? Showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. That the king was Jesus. So there's this thread that's carrying along through this long passage. And so what are we looking at here? So they arrive in Ephesus and Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. This most likely means he left them to take care of things at the church. Most likely means that. What I think is really interesting in, in both instances where Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, Priscilla's name is brought up first, indicating that she's probably the more prominent figure of the two. And I just think that's such an encouraging thing to see. That, that a, a really cool reminder that, that women in the church are not to just be sitting on the sidelines. That there's active roles for all of us to play in the community of faith. See, we're the body of Christ, many members, right? And we're all working together to, to show the world what God is like. And I just love that. Paul continues his mission of strengthening all the disciples in Antioch, Galatia, and Phrygia. And then this guy, Apollo, shows up. Apollos is competent in the scriptures, but he's missing some key information. He's corrected privately by both Priscilla and Aquila. And I think that's important, right? Because you got Priscilla and Aquila who are like kind of blue-collar workers, tent makers. And then you have this man, Apollos, who's like, he knows what he's talking about. He's like, he's a gifted orator. And, and what we see here is that this gifted orator, maybe someone who's been trained in the scriptures, maybe someone who has some status, maybe not, I don't know, but, he, but he's, he's an impressive guy. And, and he receives teaching from these two humble tradesmen and tradeswomen. Again, humility. We see it all over the text. This call to, to submit ourselves to one another, to be humble, to embody the life of Christ. Right? We share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. That's what we're about here at Redeemer Fellowship. And so, so what do we mean when we say that we share together in the life of Christ? We're participating in the life of Christ, the humble, sacrificial servant who died the death of a criminal so that we might go free. That's the life that we embody. That's the life that we embody. And, and I love that, that they take him away privately to, to, to correct him. Again, another humble thing that takes place right before our eyes. And such, I, I just love these little things that kind of pop up as you look at the text. And again, that just comes from reading the text slowly, making those observations, taking notes, seeing what patterns and themes and words are being repeated. And so, and so using our imaginations a little bit, 
I wonder what this discussion looked like. Right? Being that he only knew the baptism of John, it's quite possible that he didn't fully understand the cross-shaped nature of the way of God, especially considering that following this, this private tutoring session he has with Priscilla and Aquila, that he's now able to powerfully refute the Jews in public by showing the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. See, in other words, Apollos now understands and is able to proclaim to the world that a suffering king is the biblical king. And to expect anything else is to completely misunderstand the story of Israel and her Messiah. He's able to refute the Jews publicly and point to the fact that Jesus, this, this man who hails from Nazareth, where, where no good thing comes from, this man who has stories of, 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 of coming from a home where, where, his, where his mother was, was almost divorced and possibly pregnant before she was married, and so there's all sorts of rumors probably circulating around this particular person, Jesus. And guess what? That's our king. That's our king. The humble servant king, Jesus, is the promised Messiah. We have to wrap our minds around that. We have to daily remind ourselves that our king, as he lived on earth and ushered in the kingdom of God, was not high and lifted up just yet. And so as we live our lives on this side of glory, before the kingdom is fully realized, we're going to walk in those very same footsteps. We pick up our cross. We are glorified, provided we suffer with him. This is the pattern of the mission. This is the pattern of the Christian life. I've said this in the past, that we are forgiven by the cross and we are formed by the cross. And one theologian calls this cruciformity. We're formed by the cross of Christ. And that is not an attractive message. It's just not. And that's okay. See, I think as we, as we kind of draw to a close here this morning, see, we want to be accepted. We want that. We desire that. We want to be seen as relevant and relatable. But the reality is that what we believe and the thing that shapes our lives is something that runs contrary to anything and everything the world puts forth. See, we, as followers of Jesus, argue that human flourishing is achieved through self-denial, while the world argues that flourishing is achieved when we follow our hearts and live out every desire we might possess. We uphold suffering as the path to life when we are surrounded by a world that runs as far away from suffering as they can. We say that Jesus is king and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him, while the world around us says that there are lots and lots of kings. And it doesn't really matter which one you serve. We say that our sins need to be forgiven, while the world denies the sinful nature of what we need to be forgiven of. We encourage one another to forgive others while we're surrounded by stories that celebrate revenge. I've actually noticed this recently, that a lot of new shows that come out, they focus a lot on, on revenge. 
and, and it's like being lifted up as a virtue. And that just runs so contrary to the scriptures. But that's, that's, our, that's our world right now. Vengeance is seen as this thing that like people get excited about. And the scriptures call us so far away from that. I remember when we went through Ephesians, we were talking about the armor of God and how he lifts that right out of, I believe, Isaiah 9, I believe. And, and the one thing he leaves out is the vengeance part of the armor of God. See, we don't wear that part. We don't wear that part. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In other words, we are citizens of a kingdom that is not from this world but rather it originates from heaven and it is a kingdom formed and shaped by the suffering of its king. But while it might not be from this world, it is for this world. And we're called to live in light of it so that onlookers might catch a glimpse of who this God is that we worship and celebrate, that they might see the beauty and hope being offered by our King, and that they too might experience redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and communion with the living God for all eternity. That's what we proclaim. That's what we embody. That's what we embrace. We cling to the old rugged cross because the old rugged cross is the means by which we will taste eternal life and, and complete fellowship with God. The cross is the means by which the world around us will see the face of God. Because as I've said in the past, we proclaim the gospel in both word and deed. And so we enter into suffering in the same way Jesus entered into our suffering. We speak words of hope. We offer tangible expressions of hope. And we point people back to the risen Lord Jesus who crushed death to pieces. That is good news. And that's our king. And that's the kingdom. And that's the kingdom that did not make sense to those early Jews because they wanted, they wanted liberation but they didn't understand that they needed their sins to be forgiven. They didn't understand that there was a far bigger picture than just Israel, that this was a worldwide effort. They didn't get it. They wanted their nation to be exalted. They didn't understand. And I think often we don't understand and we have to be reminded. We have to be reminded of the good news of the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful kingdom. It's a kingdom that we all get to participate in together. It's a wonderful thing. I love the gospel. I love the resurrection of Jesus. I love the hope that one day we're going to see him face to face, that he is going to clothe his bride in white, and we're going to be presented before the throne of God for all eternity. We're going to be with him. This is what Paul was articulating to these churches as he went. This is what he wanted them to know. This is what he wanted his people to know. It's why he went to the synagogues first. It's why he spent three weeks every Sabbath arguing with them, trying to point them to Jesus because he cared so deeply that they might know. So much so that he even says in one of his letters that he was willing to give it all up so that they might know Jesus. What an incredible thing. What an incredible thing. 
Redeemer, this is good news. This is, this is great news. This is the best news. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we love you so much. We love you so much and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the good news of the kingdom, Lord, that your son Jesus is seated on the throne, Father, and that in him we have adoption, justification, sanctification. Lord, we have all of it, Lord. We possess everything in Christ. Thank you, Lord. And Father, I pray now as we go to the table, Lord, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, as it says in your word, oh, that we would remember that we remember what this is all about, that we would never forget the gospel, the good news. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection and exaltation of King Jesus, Lord, your son, our older brother. Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen.